Hi everybody, um, good evening, good evening, please come in. Um, before we start tonight, just a few, we've got quite a few sort of notices to tell you. Um, there's quite a lot going on in this last week or so before you disappear for the end of term. Uh, tomorrow, there's a little extra treat for you all, which is that I am giving a talk to the LSE uh, student Philosophy Society. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> I better go and write that. Um, on the Philosophy of News. It's at one o'clock tomorrow lunchtime at, in the Hong Kong Theatre. So you're very welcome to come along to that and help me out. Um, another thing to mention is... Uh, we're launching, it's a bit of a rush, but we thought it'd be a nice little Christmas extra. We're launching a, a photography um, project competition. Um, it's just a sort of Polis photography project that we're going to do on Tumblr, on the Polis Tumblr uh, platform. And it's really, really simple. We just want people to submit um, photos, any kind of photos, you know, smartphone photos, beautiful, um, you know, multi-grain photos, whatever. But the theme is simply texture. If you want to know more about that, um, Claire Sheehan is organising it. But either, you know, message Claire or message Polis or go and look. You're going to get a Moodle message about it very soon. And there will be prizes. Or is that prize? No, there, <laughs> there may be prizes. It may be plural. Also to remind you that... There are still a few, only a couple, I think, places on the Cumberland Lodge trip, um, which is not this weekend, is it? It's the weekend after, um, which is going to be very, very good fun and deeply educational as well. So if you haven't, sign up for that. Um, and, oh, next week, there is, a, there is another additional bonus Christmas present, sorry, festive season um, extra media agenda talk next Tuesday, um, which is going to be very, very good. We've got Caroline Criado Perez. Anybody know Caroline Criado Perez? Caroline is, um, she's actually a PhD student in the uh, gender department, but she's become extremely famous here and uh, on social media for partly for a fantastic campaign she did, an online campaign. Um, it sounds odd, but to get a woman on the British banknote, it was a kind of feminist representation campaign. She got Jane Austen onto the British banknote. And she's also, subsequent to that, got involved in loads of other interesting campaigns and basically a whole kind of online Twitter campaign against sexism and against trolling. And so she's been become something of a social and mainstream media star for her activism. So I think it's a really interesting example of somebody um, using new techniques to campaign online, and she's going to be talking about that uh, next Tuesday, same time, same place. Finally, tonight, um, we're very lucky to have Brendan Paddy here tonight to talk to you about um, communication around humanitarian emergencies a um, couple of points firstly the hashtag for tonight is polis aid um, secondly um, brendan is a man of great experience he's worked across all sorts of parts of this sector and his work with the disasters emergency committee which is the dec is particularly 
uh, kind of cutting edge and incredibly topical and by its very nature you know at the heart of uh, the media and um, crisis humanitarian uh, nexus he's tonight though speaking very much in a personal capacity which is great so instead of just hearing the same old um, you know official line we're going to hear what Brendan um, personally thinks and so it's a great opportunity for you to engage with him and ask some cutting, perceptive, intelligent, critical questions as well. So I'm very pleased to welcome Brendan Paddy here tonight. Brendan. Thank you very much, Charlie, and uh, thank you all. Um, I'm going to speak specifically about the use of images by NGOs, but I do um, obviously have a range of other things that I do in my work, and I'd be very happy at the end, and I will make sure there's time for questions, to talk about other things as well if you want to ask broader questions. Um, just, I won't waste a lot of time with bio, but just so you know where I'm coming from, I've spent about 20 years doing communications in the UK. I started off as a journalist in New Zealand on a local paper. Um, I did a little bit for a quango here and found it didn't suit me. I spent um, most of the time since working for charities, a mix of domestic and international charities. I worked for Amnesty International for about five years. I did four years or so for Save the Children, and I've now done about four years for the Disasters Emergency Committee. I used to do a lot of running around to silly places when there were disasters overseas for Save the Children. I do most of my work now in London. Um, well, look, I'll just, I'll just launch in, and I'll start with the picture that you're looking at, because it is, as Charlie says, very topical. This isn't, in many ways, the way I intended to start this uh, particular presentation. So the title I chose, um, possibly foolishly, was from, age porn to, uh, from Aid Porn to Empowerment. And there's a question mark in there because I wasn't going to suggest for a single moment that there's been smooth and steady progress, that everybody plays by the rules, and that there's no backsliding because that wouldn't be true. Um, but I was going to suggest that there was movement and there was an understanding across the sector, or at least many people within the sector, that they did need to think about the way they used images. And I do still think that's true. But I now find myself standing in front of you, and although it isn't the image I would have perhaps chosen, um, uh, and I'm happy to talk about why not, um, this is the image we picked, and I was part of picking it. And so here it is. Um, and I'll talk to you a little bit about why that choice made me uncomfortable as we go through. So let, let's, let's go back a little bit, though, and let's start where I was going to start, and it's with a slightly tougher image. I'm not going to show you... Well, I am going to show you some fairly unpleasant images. I'm not going to show you the worst images, though. I'm not going to go back to Biafra. I'm not going to go back to Ethiopia in 84. I am going to show you mostly contemporary images. If you want to get a sense of the historical use of images, both in journalism but also by NGOs, um, the literature there is pretty big. Um, they're pretty hard going. But that isn't great either. And this isn't an NGO image in the conventional sense. It isn't an image that I commissioned. It isn't an image that I would have chosen if I'd been presented with it. But I did play a part in this image being taken. And I did play a part in this image going out there. And somewhat to my embarrassment, this isn't the worst of it, because the headline that went over that on the front page of the Daily Mirror was Africa's starving again. And I think that's bullshit. But that's where we ended up, and let me tell you how it happened. So we were trying to put the Southern Africa food crisis at the... Uh, uh, it was around 2002. We were trying to put it on the map. So this is Zimbabwe, which had its 
own very serious political issues at that time, but there was also a drought because it was affecting Malawi and uh, Zambia next door as well. So this is Luke Perry, and he's from uh, Malawi. And we had tried to get this crisis on the agenda in a number of ways. We'd had really good chin-scratchy thought pieces in The Guardian. No reaction. We'd run ads in the newspapers, which had much better pictures than this, pictures we were happy with that had kids treated in a much more respectful way, frankly, in a much more dignified way, and they raised no money. And we were at our wit's end, and I had contacts with the Daily Mirror, and I said... And I liked uh, a lot of the guys at the Daily Mirror. I haven't got a thing about tabloids, but I knew what I was going to get when I sent the Daily Mirror to Malawi. And what they found was a treatment centre with a lot of very sick kids, including Luke, who has um, a, a protein deficiency called Quashcore, which is why he's got the distended belly. And he's got the sort of the classic exposed ribs, big belly, um, thin limbs, and he's got scabies as well, which is unfortunately also common in these kinds of situations. And... We ended up with it, um, and it ended up on the front page of the mirror, underneath that screaming headline. And the next day we got a call from Claire Short, who was then the Secretary of State for Development, and she had our people in, and they significantly increased the funding for Southern Africa, and we started to see a lot of pickup across other parts of the media in what had been a fairly ignored crisis in Southern Africa. Um, and I'm not suggesting for a minute that the ends justify the means. That's not my argument here tonight. I guess what I'm suggesting, if anything, is... I think there are some clear rules about the way you should treat people in the images you use, um, whether you're a journalist or whether you're working for an NGO. And I suppose the question I keep coming back to is, why can't we more consistently stick to those rules? I think we do broadly accept, in most cases, what those rules are. There are some counter-arguments, which I'll run through. But why do we keep ending up back here? But first, let's just talk a little bit about where pictures come from. So I talked a little bit about Luke and where that picture came from. This is another way images come to be. This is a picture I took myself on a trip to northern uh, Kenya in a place called Wajir. It was hit really badly by the um, food crisis and the wider crisis in East Africa in 2011. Um, Those are the pictures I tend to take. I had the opportunity on that trip to go into uh, a unit full of very malnourished babies, and I didn't want to do it, and I didn't need to do it, and so I didn't do it. And that's the picture I came back with. And actually, for feeding back to our donors the story of how their money had helped and what we were doing, pictures like this and others like it, from my point of view, were as good or better. This is a picture that was taken by a photographer called Tina Stallard. Um, She's a former producer on Panorama at the BBC who then switched over into photography and now does some video as well. And it's, it's Haiti. And the brief I gave to Tina was the same brief I give to everybody who's taken photographs in these situations. And that is, these people are the heroes in their stories. It's not white aid workers flying out from London who are the heroes. If you have a hero in your story, the hero is local NGOs, local communities, leaders, and people actually doing things for themselves, which is overwhelmingly what happens after a disaster. Some of it's supported by international NGOs, but a lot of it spontaneously within communities. This is the picture from the second major disaster that I helped lead the comms on at the Disasters Emergency Committee. This is Pakistan in 2011 and the monsoon floods. Um, 
the selection of pictures there wasn't great. We were relying on news pics, which is a, a frequent issue for us. Um, we didn't have the chance to brief a photographer and get our own images. We didn't have staff who'd taken decent quality images we could use. We were relying on news images, which tend to be on the shocking side, which tend to be um, on the visceral side. And we actually didn't choose those. We chose this. And we, we cropped it a bit, but we ended up with this guy and, and carrying his, his child through the floodwaters because, for us it captured some of what we wanted to get, which is this was a very serious crisis. People weren't helpless. They weren't sitting around waiting for handouts, but they did need help. And then there's this, and this is what can happen when you, in a sense, do a deal with the devil. Um, as I say, I don't have a problem with tabloid journalists per se, but when we did a story about a food crisis in Africa with um, the photographer that I knew was going to be assigned to this, I pretty much knew what I was getting, and so I guess I've got no right to complain. So I guess the questions it raises for me is, to what extent do you accept that there's a moral imperative where people need help and you're in a position to help them to do whatever you have to do to raise the money to actually spend to help them? To what extent is there a journalistic imperative to tell the truth, even if it's uncomfortable, even if people don't like it, even if it makes them want to turn away? And to what extent do you have to say, actually, there's certain fundamental rules about dignity, which you should respect, and the fact that somebody is in a bad way, the fact that they're overseas, does not change that. Would you treat a child in the UK like this? I would be surprised. And then there's something deeper, and that's where does the way that we see places in Africa come from. Why did we end up with a headline that said Africa is starving again? Yes, there have been famines in Africa, but why is this the persistent view that Africa is some kind of basket case and that we should expect this? And of course, it's happened again. Where does that come from? And what responsibilities do we have, whether we're journalists or whether we're working in NGOs, to actually try and do something about the way that people see not just um, African countries, but developing countries more generally. I'll take a slight step back from those questions for just a moment to run you through some other issues, uh, some other images from the DC's um, appeals in my time there. So this is Haiti, and this feels like pretty old school. Um, I was certainly involved in the conversation around this picture. I didn't choose it. I'm not trying to exalt myself responsibility there. I know why the picture was chosen. It was news footage. It was news shots. It's what we had. Um, in hindsight, I wish we'd found something else. Um, I'm not terribly pleased with it, but there it is. This is where we went when I could commission my own photographs. This is another one of Tina's pictures. Um, and this is how I would prefer to engage with people from countries that we're helping. Um, I'd prefer to see people ideally actually engaged in the response themselves, whether they're survivors of a disaster, whether they're people from communities or NGOs, whether they're national staff from international agencies. This is the Pakistan image again. And then we moved on from Pakistan to something that reflected the fact that we were spending a lot of time and energy trying to help people replace crops, replace cattle, rebuild livelihoods. This is East Africa. This is a picture from Mogadishu, and it's people who fled south-central Somalia, um, where there was a famine. Um, and the people here were, in a strange sense, the lucky ones, which is really saying something when you look at the conditions that they're living in. 
I did choose this image. We had other options. Um, it's an NGO image, and it's an uncomfortable image. It's a chaotic image. It's full of difficult things, but I liked the fact that there was somebody meeting my gaze levelly. Maybe I'm being naive, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but my immediate reaction to this isn't that I'm looking down at this family. It's not that I'm pitying them. It's not that I'm treating them as objects or others. Um, for me, this is a human family. And so that's my personal, sorry, emotional, as you can tell, response to this. And that's one of the reasons why we ended up with that picture. But feel free to knock holes in that rather um, possibly naive point of view. And that's where we went next. So again, this is somebody who's replanted their fields after the disaster and is really doing it for themselves. Yes, with some seeds from us. Yes, from, with some tools from us, perhaps. But, but there's no, there's no um, international aid worker in this picture doing the handout, building the school, any of that crap. Um, what you've got is somebody who has rebuilt their own lives with a little bit of help from the outside. But that isn't the whole story. That's not, you know, that's the narrative I would like to be able to give you, that people recognise these issues, they engage with the issues, and they move on from them. I think it is true that because people keep hitting us over the back of the head with the, the literature, not because we've read it, but because people keep hitting us over the back of the head with it, that it's hard to find too many people working in aid who aren't aware that they should know and should care more about the selection of images and what it means. But you still end up with this. And I'm not going to get into naming and shaming individual agencies, but I hope to God I never find myself using a picture like that. And if I do, maybe it's time for me to think about another job. I'm not happy with agencies using those kinds of images. And let me just talk you through a couple of reasons why, if they're not immediately obvious. So one, I think there's an issue about dignity and whether you show a severely emaciated child um, with so much flesh exposed. And maybe you can get into an argument about journalistic truth this isn't a setup. This child hasn't been starved for the cameras. He really was severely malnourished. But I'm not sure I'm comfortable with the way he's been treated. Because, well, let's come on to it in a minute, but there's, there's certain, for me, certain fundamental rules about the way you portray people. But there's a second thing here too, which is the camera angle. We're looking down at him, and I'm not very comfortable with that. That isn't a camera angle I would want anybody to use in shots that I commissioned and if I was given photos like that I would send the photographer away and ask them to have another go or hire somebody else frankly um, and the final thing is he's on his own and that doesn't really reflect the reality and it isn't really in my view okay which is one of the reasons I'm not comfortable sorry of course you're looking at the image it's one of the reasons I was going to talk about the Philippines image again this is a child on his own and maybe they got parental permission. I hope they did. Maybe there's a loving family or a caring local doctor or nurse just out of shot. But why aren't they in shot? Um, why are we being shown this child in isolation, helpless and alone? Well, it's, it's fairly simple, actually. It's because we're trying to ask you for your money. And if the child looks helpless and pathetic, and if it looks like no one else is there to help the child, then maybe you will help. I think that's really cheap. And I think we can do better than that. And I think he deserves better than that, and so do our donors. Don't get me started. So this is from Somalia, and it's a screenshot shot from a video that shouldn't have been shot and shouldn't have been released. My apologies for sharing it with you. This is what my old boss used to call flies in the eyes. 
and it's really distressing and I'm very uncomfortable that I work with people who would think it was appropriate to use it and I've talked to the agency involved. They were actually genuinely willing to engage. So I'll, I'll talk a little bit about the role that I played in this because it's a bit of a bugbear of mine. But I've had conversations with a couple of quite big household name agencies about these sorts of issues. And some of them will defend the use of imagery, argue that they're showing a journalistic truth, argue that they need the funds to do life-saving work, and that in that context their use of imagery is on the right side of the border. I don't think any of them particularly proud of the images they use. There's a few exceptions, but that argue it was on the right side of the border. And there are others who, when you challenge them, you realise actually they haven't thought it through. And they're not perhaps conscious of the impact that it might have. They're not fully aware of what they're doing, and they're willing to engage with you on it. And I, I do find that heartening. So this, this is an image that disturbs me in a way for a different reason from the last one. It's not a raw image. It's not... Uh, it is graphic, but it's not as graphic as some of the other ones I've shown you. In many senses, it's a very painterly image. The light in this picture is really beautiful. Um, and the child is, to be fair, mostly covered. It is in its mother's arms. This is very much on the borderline for me, though, in terms of where I would go in terms of use of imagery. And this is from a, this is from a food crisis. This is, this is not something that people used in generic fundraising material. This is something that was part of a, an appeal for the East Africa food crisis. I believe this is northern Kenya rather than southern Somalia. Not that there's much difference in many ways. So that's a run through. Oh, no, we've got one more. Um, and this really is my personal favourite. So if you look at the, the way that Africa in particular, but colonial countries were portrayed in uh, the colonial period, you'll see that a lot of the tropes that were common then are still with us. They're common in journalism, they're common in literature, and sadly in some cases they're still common in some of the, the narratives that you see around the stories that NGOs tell. One of my personal least favourite things is what's sometimes called whites in shining armour. So where you have a bunch of white people ride in and rescue the poor black people. Fuck that shit. <laughs> um, this is final picture from me. This is one um, taken in southern Ethiopia. Um, and I don't, I don't want to make too big a deal of this, but I did go to really pretty extraordinary lengths, even though the girls were super happy to have their photograph taken, they were really pleased with the well that we'd worked with Tear Fund and one of their partners to pay for, um, but they were minors, these kids are under 18, and if you did this in the UK, if you took pictures of kids for something like this, I wasn't trying to make money here, this was to show people that we'd spent their money on something good, and that had done some good, but we trudged up into the hills and we spent two hours rooting around until we found their grandmother because I was really uncomfortable with the idea that we were just going to take a picture and go off and share it with our donors without somebody uh, with the responsibility of care for those children um, being involved in that process. It was a bit weird when we got there because the grandmother was confused initially and said, you're not wanting to take the children, are you? And I said, no. And she said, so what's the problem? And I said, oh, fine, great. We're all on the same page. She was delighted that we had a picture. They were pleased with the well. They were very happy 
that their children were going to help share the good news with the people who'd helped pay for the well. So I've kind of covered some of this, and I won't sort of, of labour it. I've covered the stuff about sort of, um, you know, the white man's burden, treating people as savages, hearts of darkness, people being lazy or childlike, overpopulation, I mean, all that crap. Um, and I guess I feel that pretty strongly, partly because my wife has a master's degree in post-colonial literature, and if I forget even briefly, she's very quick to remind me. Um, but in terms of how... The, the engagement of the sector has evolved. It's not really with the literature. It's mostly through various codes and sort of, if you like, self-policing. The one I keep coming back to, although it's very non-specific in many ways, is the Red Cross Code. So this is probably as close as you get to the Ten Commandments for aid agencies, although technically the Red Cross is a world into itself. It's an intergovernmental organisation, not a non-governmental organisation, as they're fond of reminding people. But everybody really who's anybody in the world of aid tends to sign up to it. And one of the things it says very clearly in point 10 is, in our information, publicity and advertising activities, we shall recognise disaster victims as dignified human beings, not hopeless objects. And I guess that's one of the things that should be informing everything we do. Whether it's in advertising for funds or whether it's in campaigning or whether it's in just communicating with donors about what we've done with their money. There's also various other groups that have um, a variety of rules and complaints mechanisms um, and you know, self-policing things. And some of the toughest stuff I've read about this, particularly regarding sort of perpetuating stereotypes, actually comes out of the sector. It doesn't come from academics. There's a document called Finding Frames, which if you're interested in this stuff is worth digging out. It was started by Oxfam. It was part funded in the end by Difford. Um, and it just talks about how persistent some of the colonial tropes are. And it talks about the fact that NGOs in some cases are guilty of perpetuating them. And there's an open question at the end, which is how can we engage people in the reality of people's lives in the poorest countries in the world in a meaningful way at a deeper level that gets us beyond the stuff which is easy, the stuff that's based on people's preconceptions and sadly prejudices in some cases. There wasn't an easy answer. Don't read Finding Frames expecting an easy answer. Um, but if you want a good critique of what we're getting wrong, it's hard to beat. So, so what do I try and do? And I, I hope I've been pretty frank about the fact that I don't think that I get this right, that I don't think it's easy. Um, but I do think, for me, there's a few things that I always start with. One I've mentioned, which is treat the people in the story who are the ones you're working with, who are the ones you're trying to support, as the true centre of the story. They're not part of the scenery. Um, they're not there to put your arm around as a white aid worker. Um, they're the heroes, make sure that's clear in the pictures and in the words as well. How would you want to be portrayed? How would you want your children to be portrayed? Would it be acceptable if you portrayed children in the United Kingdom in this way? So Charlie kindly prompted me about what I've done about this. Um, I try to make better choices where I can. And I'll come on to talk about the picture that I showed you at the beginning at the end as an illustration of why that's perhaps harder than it sounds. But I also do try and engage with, engage with colleagues. The, the DEC is a fundraising body. We do tell the story when there's a major emergency like the Philippines. We're the ones who decide which numbers we use, which pictures we use, um, which messages we use, um, which spokespeople we put up. 
Um, so we do have a fair degree of influence, but we, we don't dictate everything that our member agencies do, and we certainly don't control their choices about images. But because I had a bit of a bee in my bonnet about this, colleagues of mine did say to me, look, we will come to you and we will tell you where we think something is over the line if you are prepared to raise it privately with the NGOs. And yes, okay, it's been private, um, but the reason for that is because, well, one, I don't want to pretend for a minute that I've got all the answers to this and that it's easy or that it's black and white. Um, and two, I know from experience with this kind of thing that if you challenge people publicly on this stuff, there's a risk that the shutters go up and you don't get very far with it. Um, they feel they've got no choice but to defend themselves. And there are defences. There are defences for most of what I've shown you, even the stuff that I'm really unhappy about. There are, there are decent cases you can make. Not, I think, good cases, but decent cases. So that brings me back to Joshua, who's 11. He's in Takleban. A five-metre wall of water, a storm surge, hit when Typhoon Haiyan came in on what was late Thursday night, nearly, nearly four weeks ago, um, early Friday morning for him and his family. His mother was killed. His sister Jamaica was killed. He survived because he managed to cling to a piece of plywood and he was washed miles inshore, but survived and came back to this place where his house used to be. And I didn't know any of that when we chose the picture, and I didn't want to choose the picture. We didn't have better options, to be blunt. Um, we needed an, an, an appeal photo that allowed people to engage in a human way with the consequences of a vast storm, um, he's perhaps not the best person to quote in any context, but Joseph Stalin was right about one thing, which is millions of people are a statistic, but one person is a tragedy. And so in order to convey this, we did need to throw some big numbers at people, but we needed to make this human. And so that meant I needed to choose from the news pictures that I had at my disposal a picture which gave people some sense of engagement with someone who'd lived through this crisis. And that's how we ended up choosing this photo, because the other options, sadly, were very weak and didn't give us the minimum we needed to run a successful appeal. The good news is, when a journalist went and found Joshua, he's doing as well as you could expect. He's living with his uncle. His father has been found. He's injured, but it looks like he's going to recover. And Joseph was shown the picture and the appeal material that we produced, and he was delighted. He was really happy because he felt he had done something through having his picture taken and used, albeit, let's be blunt about this, without his knowledge, that really made a big difference for his community and a lot of other people affected by this crisis. But as soon as we could, we switched to something else. And I'm not saying that this picture is perfect, but it's more like the picture I would have chosen if I'd had the option because at least the children are in the context of a family and we're asking you to support them, not to pity them. Thank you very much.